If you have your Bible today, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, and I want you to reach into your bulletin and pull out your sermon notes so that you can take notes today. Our ushers are going to go down the aisle. If you don't have a Bible, they have one that you can use. They have one that you can have. If you need one, I'd encourage you, if you didn't bring yours today for some reason, just to wave at them. If you don't have a Bible, put your name in this one and keep it. But in Matthew chapter 26, we see the danger of following Jesus at a distance. And we've been in this series for six weeks now that we're calling Domino. And the whole thought of this series is that Jesus wants us to have impact on people. The whole thought of this series is that these names and life issues that are represented on these flags, we can really make a difference in their lives if we will just be intentional about the people that we're living life around, bumping into them spiritually. So we've been talking about how to be a disciple and how to make disciples. But today in Matthew chapter 26, we see a threat to disciple being and a threat to disciple making just to catch you up on where we are jesus and the disciples have just had his last their last supper he's washed the disciples feet they have taken about a quarter mile walk across the kidron valley and they're settling in now to the garden of gethsemane as we pick up the narrative in matthew chapter 26 and starting in verse 36 here's what it says then jesus went with his disciples to a place called gethsemane and he said to them sit here while i go over there and pray He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him with a greeting like you would maybe see a European give. Verse 50. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached out for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that I can call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say, it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled, but Peter followed him at a distance. Right up to the courtyard of the high priest, he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now, Matthew chapter 26 has always been... A familiar narrative to me but it's become one of my favorite narratives in all of scripture because I can see this place in my head two years ago we started going on trips with our church to Israel 
And while we were in Israel, I think they're going to show a picture here in a minute. Every place we would go in Israel, I would sit beside the tour guide who was with us or the person who was leading our trip. And we'd go to a site and they would show us something. And then as we were getting back or as we were going to the site, I would always ask the same question every place we went. Was Jesus here? Was Jesus here? Was Jesus here? Like my purpose of going to Israel was to walk where Jesus walked. My purpose of going to Israel was to be where Jesus was. So every place we would go, I would say, Is Jesus, was Jesus here? And usually it was a whole lot of, you know, well, maybe he, you know, he was here somewhere. Sea of Galilee, where was he at? You know, he, he was there somewhere. There's not a lot of places where we know exactly where Jesus was. But Matthew 26, we know exactly where Jesus was. Here's a picture of me teaching this chapter in Matthew 26 in Israel. And those are the steps that lead up to Caiaphas' house that we read about in Matthew chapter 26. It is one of the most geographically accurate historical locations in all of Israel. So we're at Caiaphas' house. And we're studying scripture, and I turned to the man, and I said, was Jesus, like, that's all I cared about. Was Jesus here? And he said, Christian, it is almost 100% certain that Jesus walked on those steps. Those would be the steps that lead from the Garden of Gethsemane across the Kidron Valley to the Caiaphas' house. It is, like, not just possible, it's probable. Jesus, that you read in the, about in the Bible, his feet were on those steps. And just to the right of there is the courtyard in front of Caiaphas' house. And he said, Christian, it's not just possible. It's probable. It's almost certain this is where Peter denied Jesus. So I asked him, can I, you know, can I walk on those steps? And he said, no, you'll get arrested. And I said, well, if I go really fast. And he said, no, you, like, that's why the fence is there. You're not allowed to do that. But I went to Israel because I want to I be where Jesus was. I, I want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And that's what a disciple is as we talk through the series. If you want to jot this down on your notes, a disciple is a committed follower of Jesus who doesn't just walk where Jesus walks, but he, do what, he, he does what Jesus does. They make other disciples. So a disciple is a committed follower of Jesus who makes other disciples. And I went to Israel because I physically wanted to walk where Jesus walked, but I lived my Christian life trying to spiritually learn how to live like Jesus lived. And there's probably no greater text in Scripture to tell us what to beware of in following Jesus than in Matthew chapter 26. Because Matthew chapter 26 presents to us a narrative of a distant disciple who on this night of Jesus' life was worthless to him and everyone else. What does a distant disciple look like? I want to look at that today because there may be some of you in here today who are following Jesus but at a distance. And there may be some of you here today who say, I want to make a difference for Jesus, and I know Jesus, and I love Jesus, but like, you're watching Jesus from afar, and maybe you don't even realize where you've drifted from, because the Apostle Peter was close to Jesus, but on this night he wasn't. And I don't know where you've come from spiritually, but if you're sitting in this room today and you're following Jesus at a distance, I want to tell you, you are a threat to what God wants to do in you because your commitment level has slowed down. What does it look like to be a distant disciple? Well, first, as we look at Peter here in the courtyard of the high priest, we see a distant disciple as someone who's around Jesus, but they're not with Jesus. They're around Jesus, but they're not with Jesus. Look at the first part of verse 58 in Matthew chapter 26. It says, Peter followed him at a distance. You need to underline those words at a distance. And you need to ask yourself, are you following Jesus at a distance? Because there is proximity to our faith. And some follow, and some follow at a distance. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard 
of the high priest. Now listen, a distant disciple might find themselves at the same place as Jesus occasionally, but the problem is they're not with him. You know, if, if you define your Christianity by places, then you may be around Jesus, but not with Jesus. Say, what do I mean by that? A lot of people, when you ask them to, about their Christianity, hey, tell me about your Christianity. They start talking about places. Well, here's where I go to church. Here's what my small group means. Here's some youth camps that I went to when I was younger where, you know, I made a decision at a youth camp. Here's a mission trip that I'm going on. And we describe, we describe our Christianity by places instead of people. But Jesus is not a place. Jesus is a person. And Peter was in the right place, and he was there at the right time. But he was not with the right person. And if the pinnacle of your Christianity every week is this church service, you are following Jesus at a distance because the pinnacle of your faith is not supposed to be a place that you come to, but a person that you connect with. Jesus wants you to be with him, not just around him. Now in Acts chapter 4, we see some people who were with Jesus, the person Not a place, the person Jesus. Peter and John had been going through the temple. Jesus had been crucified. He'd resurrected. He'd ascended into heaven according to scripture. And Peter and John had healed this guy, which had kind of freaked everyone out because they weren't sure if it was legal or illegal to heal someone. It had happened so randomly they had never really made a law about it. But because the healing made them look bad, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, was trying to figure out if they were allowed to do this and if they were allowed to do it who they were allowed to give credit for. So they're kind of having this argument before, like the Supreme Court of Israel. And here's what it says they said about Peter and John. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So it's interesting, in Acts chapter 4, we see five really simple things. It could be a whole sermon. I'm going to give it to you in 60 seconds. We see some signs that you've been with Jesus. I just want to jot these down because they're not going to be on your notes. One, when you've been with Jesus, people recognize it. They look at Peter and John and they're like, man, I'm not sure what's going on, but I know they hung out. I know they were with Jesus. When you've been with Jesus, people recognize it. When you've been with Jesus, you live with boldness. They told Peter and John, you could get in trouble if you don't stop doing this. And they said, we can't stop living for Jesus. We can't stop living with Jesus. When you've been with Jesus, your life is different. They said, Peter and John, we remember them this way. But now they're this way. They're different. Jesus must have done that. When you've been with Jesus, your life is better. They saw this guy who was crippled, who was now healed. They said, man, we're not real sure about Jesus, but we know whatever Jesus did in this guy's life, it made his life better. And then when you've been with Jesus, people around you are being blessed. That's what happened. Anyone who got around Peter and John, because they'd been with Jesus, people were blessed as a result of them. So as you look at your life, if those five things aren't happening in your life, Maybe you come to church every week. Maybe you're around Jesus. But if you're not with Jesus, you're following at a distance. And every follower of Jesus, every now and then needs to get out their binoculars and see if they're following closely or if they're following at a distance. When you look at the signs of those who have been with Jesus, Peter was none of these things on the night he followed Jesus at a distance. In fact, number two, as we look at Peter, Peter was somebody who was a spiritual spectator, not a spiritual participant. In Matthew chapter 26, 58. We see Peter has turned into someone who's a spiritual spectator, but he's not a spiritual participant. Look at verse 58. We'll read through the whole verse again. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. 
He sat down to watch the show. And he sat on the visiting side. He sat down with the guards who had arrested Jesus and, and probably did something like this. Well, we're going to see how this turns out. And there are a lot of people following Jesus at a distance that are just spiritual spectators. You're just kind of watching spiritual life unfold for other people. Now listen, sometimes being a spectator can be awesome. This week being a spectator of sports in Kansas City, like, has been awesome. It's been exhausting, but it has been awesome. I got a, I got a text message late last week from one of the guys in our church, and he, we had not clinched the playoffs yet, but he said, hey, I'm going to buy wild card tickets just in case we get in. And if we get in, do you, do you want to go with me? I'll, I'll pay. And I texted him back, are you kidding? Like, like, that's not, like, that's not even a real question. Like, of course. So they got in, and we went Tuesday night, and it, it is the greatest sporting event that I've been to in the history of my life. Uh, you know, I mean, some very large, intoxicated man with a big beard hugged me and gave me a kiss when it was over. And, and, I, was, and I was okay with that. I thanked him. I mean, it, it was like, this is incredible. Um, I had, a, I had a couple approach me Sunday morning after our 1045 service. And they said, hey, are you going to the Monday night game at Arrowhead tomorrow? And I said, no. And they said, do you want to? And I said, of course. Um, and they said, we have an extra ticket. Here's when to be at our house. We'll tailgate. And then we'll go watch. And I stood and screamed my head off with the people at Arrowhead Stadium and set a new Guinness World Record for loudest outdoor stadium. And we just killed the Patriots. And Tom Brady and Bill Belichick were crying. I mean, it was, it was awesome, right? Like as a sports spectator, it was awesome. Then I stayed up late on Thursday watching baseball. I stayed up late on Friday watching baseball. I was sitting on the couch yesterday watching great college football all day long. And Danielle came up to me at some point during the TV watching. And she said, hey. I was kind of zoned in. She said, hey. I said, what? And she said, do you love sports more than me? And I said, what? <laughs> and she said, do you love sports more than me? And I looked at her and I said, Baseball or football? <laughs> she didn't think that was funny. And I said, let's talk at halftime. And I went back to watching the game. And I was like, you know, of course not. But, it, you know, it's been like, it's been a great week as a spectator. You know what would have made the week better? If they would have let me in the dugout. Or, or if they would have let me on the field. Or if they would have handed me like a champagne bottle in the clubhouse. Like, being a spectator is one thing. Like, I would have given, given anything to be a part of that. And there are a lot of us, we've been spectators in the game of Christianity, except Jesus says, I have a jersey for you. And you get an at-bat. And, and you can go out for a pass. And you can call a play. And you, you can try to do what the Royals outfielders do. And you can come into the club. Like, Jesus is inviting the spectators out of the stands onto the field so that they can live for him and with him. And listen, you can learn a lot about Jesus while watching, but you can only live for Jesus by doing. And it's time that some of you move from cheering in the stands of faith to participating in the game of faith. Some of you have come a long way by being a spectator. But Jesus is saying, you're up. He's got a bat with your number on the handle, and he's saying, hey, you're up. He's got a glove with your name. He's got a locker with your uniform. And he's saying, hey, you're up. And it's time now to get out of the stands. Some of you have been watching for a time so you can get healthy spiritually. That's great. But it's time now to play. You come here and you watch every Sunday and that's awesome. But it's time now to volunteer 
and to get engaged serving people in our church. Some of you have been coming and you've been seeing what's going on in our church, but you've yet to engage fully in a small group. You just want to watch for a little bit before you decide if you're really going to lock in with a group of people spiritually. And it's time now to get out of the stands and to join a small group. Some of you come and are so blessed by what so many faithful people in this church give, but you've never given. And it's time now to engage in giving. It's time to get out of the stands and to get in the game spiritually. It's time to quit letting your Sunday be a show that you watch on Sunday and you start going home Monday through Saturday and you start reading your Bible and praying too. It's time to get out of the stands. There's a pastor in Oklahoma who pastors the largest church in America his name's Craig Rochelle. His church is lifechurch.tv. They run just less than 50,000 people every Sunday, and they've got campuses all over America. And he said a few years ago at a conference he was teaching that the greatest mistake they had made and the biggest change they had made is that as they started new churches and planted new churches, they would never, ever build an auditorium again that seated more than 750 people. Because he said when you build a huge auditorium, people come to watch. When you keep it small, people come to participate. And he said, we've got to let people know this is not about the show and how many people we can fit in the building. This is about all of us living on mission together. And that's from a guy speaking to 50,000 people every Sunday. Participation is better than spectating. But at this moment, Peter was a spectator. At this moment, Peter didn't volunteer to do anything. At this moment, Peter didn't volunteer to go all the way in where John was to be around Jesus. At this moment, Peter didn't give anything. He just, he just watched. You know, I saw a quote attributed to Michael Jordan. I'm sure he wasn't the first one who said it. But I read a quote that Michael Jordan said, some people make things happen. Some people watch things happen. And most people just sit back and say, what happened? There are people in this church that make things happen. And there are some of you who you've kind of been sitting back at a distance and you've been watching things happen. And there's a lot of people in this community that are saying, what's happening over there? But we need some people to make things happen. We need spectators to get out of the seats and get engaged. Don't follow at a distance. And then thirdly, when we look at a distant disciple, we see in Peter somebody who loves Jesus, but they have a fear of others finding out. Listen, we don't have to state the obvious There's no question that Peter loved Jesus. There's no question Peter would have died for Jesus. But on this night, he was in a place where he feared people knowing about his faith in Jesus. Look at Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. So Jesus, Peter watched this entire trial. He sat in the stands and watched the trial. And here's what it said happened as Peter was watching all this. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. And a servant girl. We know just by studying the language of the text and the history of the times that this servant girl would have been between the ages of 11 and 13. Not a real scary figure to share that you're a Christian with. But it says, A servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and she said to the people, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth and he denied it again with an oath saying, I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. 
We know, Je- we know Peter loved Jesus. But on this night, he was afraid to let other people know that. And there are some people in this room, you love Jesus. You know you love Jesus. The people you serve in our church with know you love Jesus. Your small group knows you love Jesus. But outside of that, there's this fear of anyone else finding out that you're a Christian and that you believe certain things and you try to live your life a certain way. We see this process play out in in the book of John with a man named Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, it says there was this great teacher in Israel. His name was Nicodemus. And it said he came to Jesus at night for fear that people would find out. Some of us are living our faith at night for fear that people will find out. Man, we blow up every social activity we're ever at on Facebook, but when it comes to Sunday mornings, kind of like we live at night. And some of us, like any activity we do throughout the week, you know, we're, we're talking about the next day, except for our small groups, and in our small groups, we're, we're living at night. And some of us, man, we're willing to engage in any discussion unless it becomes a faith discussion with kind of a point of conflict, and then, and then we have that discussion at night. We, we don't talk about that in public. And with Nicodemus, it took him three years. I'm not even condemning this in you. I'm just pointing it out. All of us have areas that we live in at night. Some of us, it's our job. Some of us, it's when we go eat Thanksgiving dinner with extended family. Some of us, it's with, when we're with our neighbors. Some of us, it's, it's our spouse. Some of us, it's when our kids go off to college and they get in a fraternity or sorority and we just kind of let that area of our life exist at night for fear that people will find out about it. And with Nicodemus, we say it take three years before he came in the daytime. And the Bible says when he had finally seen Jesus crucified and he was hanging on the cross, he and a rich buddy of his, his name was Joseph, went to the guy in charge and said, can we, he's our friend. Can we have his body and give him a proper burial? They said it took three years for Nicodemus to stand up and say, I'm, I'm with him. And I don't know how long it's going to take you to stand up in every circle of your life and say, I'm with Jesus. But I know as long as we follow Jesus at a distance, living in fear, we don't have the impact that Jesus wants us to have in life. The reality is that Christians are called to be Jesus' ambassadors in the world. Like the Apostle Paul says, the whole reason behind everything that has happened to you spiritually is that Jesus needs you to represent him. An ambassador is an official representative of a country, province, or place. It's one of the the best words in the English language that correctly translates back to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. It's like, this actually means in English what it meant in Greek. An ambassador is an official representative of a country, province, or place. And you know what? There are good representatives. And there are bad representatives of a place. I have a friend who moved over from India several years ago. Went to elementary school, high school in India. And he decided to come to the States for college. And he and a group of friends had never been to the United States of America. And they got on an airplane together to come do college here. And they, they went to Tulsa. That was, that was where they finally landed. And that's where they were going to go to college. And I said, what did, like, what did you think America would be like? Like, you'd never been? No. So what did you know about America? And you know what his answer was? Baywatch. He said, that's the only American TV that was on in India. We thought America was like Baywatch. And I thought, how disappointed were they when they landed in Tulsa? It's like, this isn't America. 
because I don't, you know, David Hasselhoff is not the perfect representation of the United States of America. Pamela Anderson is probably the worst representation of the United States of America. So there's, there's bad representation, right? Like we thought this was one way and it's clearly something different. But then there's good representation. And look what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of the most powerful pieces of scripture for any Christian to learn and understand. Paul said, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So Paul said, our eyes have been opened. We think about everything spiritually now. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, worldly, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Why? He answers it. All this is from God. Who reconciled, reconciled means to put back together a broken relationship who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It means we have a job, we have a role. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. What is it? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul said, God changed me and he put his spirit in me so that I can come and tell you he loves you, what you've done in your past, he doesn't want to hold against you, he's going to forgive all that junk, he's not going to punish you for any of that junk, and he wants to be your friend. That's your job as an ambassador. Go let everyone know what Jesus has done in you and what he wants to do in them. That's your role and responsibility as a Christian. Now, it takes a lot to theologically understand representing our Heavenly Father. But I, I get this a little bit because of how I represent my earthly father. So my dad was my football coach in high school. Long before I played for him, he'd become a Hall of Fame football coach at our school. He, he was the greatest coach in our community, most well-respected coach in our community. And he debated for a long time whether or not he wanted to be my coach. Because he didn't know how that would look in the community if, if he was coaching his son. And I'll never forget before my freshman year, my dad, we went up to the school early and him sitting me down and saying, Christian, I need you to understand something. If you're going to play for me, you have to understand you represent me. And for the next four years, everyone is going to judge me by the way you play the game and by the way you practice. See, so I, I need you to understand. He basically was saying, I've built a great reputation. Don't mess it up. But, but what he was saying to me was this. He said, Christian, for the next four years, all your friends are going to let me coach them the way that I coach you. So I need you for the next four years to be the first one at practice every day. And I need you for the next four years to be the last one to leave practice every day. And I need you to win every sprint that you ever run. And I need you, after you've run those, I need you to go back and run with the guys who are last. And though it's the freshman's job at our school to always take in the practice footballs and the dummies and the kicking tees, he said, I want you to do that every practice all the way through your senior year. Help the freshman. I want you to be kind and respectful to the people getting the water and the managers who are cleaning the football. You need to understand everyone's going to look at me by, by how you perform and how you treat people. And he said, do you understand and will you take seriously that you're a representative of me? I said, Dad, I got it. And for four years and beyond, like I knew I represent my dad. There are some Christians yet who have not yet taken seriously that you represent your dad. You represent your heavenly father. 
And there are some people when they, the only thing they know about God is what they see in you. And some of you are being Baywatch representations of who, you're not being a good representation of who Jesus really is. And if God could sit us down and have a talk with us like my dad would do with me, my dad was basically saying this, you have to be great because that's what I have started and I, and I don't want you to ruin it for me. You've got to work the hardest, you've got to try the hardest, you've got to be the kindest. And I don't know if we'll win or lose, I don't know how much you'll play, but you've got to be better than everyone else because you represent me. God is trying to say to a generation, you represent me. And you've got to be better. I had a difficult phone call several weeks ago with something going on with our church. And I was talking to a guy who somehow had, he'd just become the baton passer. When someone needed to get a difficult message to our church, like he was the guy who had to call me for five or six times in a row. And as he called me and told me the news, and it, you know, it wasn't great news, I was like, all right, well, you know, we'll just we'll figure out another way. He said, man, I've never known anyone that takes bad news as well as you do. And I said, you've got to understand, I'm not taking this well, and I'm not happy with this. But I have to realize I represent Jesus in this community, not me. I'd like to act like a jerk. I feel like acting like a jerk. But I have to react like Jesus, because that's my position. Don't think it's me is not my natural way to react to bad news. But I realize I want to try to be great for Jesus, not for me. So Christians are called to be official representatives. Your actions, your reactions, your habits, your attitudes, that's you. But we're also called to be intentional about reaching our world. We're not only called to be official representatives. So being an official representative is an understanding. Okay, man, I realize that I... I carry the banner of God in this world. I am what people will think of Jesus. So that's an awareness. Being intentional about reaching the world is an action. So we need to, in this series, put awareness and action together. In John chapter 1, I love John chapter 1, verses 40 through 46, it talks about Jesus' first disciples. And it says, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John, that's John the Baptist, had said about Jesus and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, come and see, Philip says. See, here's what happened. When we talk about domino, when we talk about just falling into one, Andrew found Simon, Simon found Jesus. And the rest is history. Like one of the most religious places on planet Earth outside the Holy Land is a little acreage in Rome, Italy, where the Pope lives and is named and they worship. And if you ever turn on TV on Christmas and Easter, they're there. And you know where they're coming from? St. Peter's Basilica. Why'd that happen? Because Andrew found Simon. Andrew found Simon, Peter, Simon, Peter found Jesus, and the rest is history. Philip. You look at Philip. Philip found Nathaniel. Nathaniel found Jesus. And if you go to the country of Armenia today, you'll find out that Nathaniel trekked thousands of miles on foot as a disciple. And he took the gospel of Jesus to Armenia. The king of Armenia ended up giving his life to Jesus in the first century. And there are still churches and shrines set up to Jesus because Philip found Nathaniel. Nathaniel found Jesus. And then Nathaniel kept telling people. 
See, all we're asked to do spiritually is to find one. And maybe they'll say yes and maybe they'll say no. But what if they say yes and end up like the Apostle Peter? What if they say yes and end up like Nathaniel? What if they say yes and end up being called to ministry? What if they say yes and then they go reach one more? You can see how the gospel gets into the world if one will fall into one who will fall into one. So we've said in this series that our great purpose as Christians, you may have heard it called the Great Commission is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'm surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We've summed up and recapped this series with this thought. Jesus said, as you go into the world, listen, since you're going to be with them and I'm going to be with you, you should introduce us. This is the astounding spiritual thought Jesus leaves his disciples with. As you live your life, you're going to be with people. As you live your life, I'm going to be with you. Since you're going to be with them and I'm going to be with you, you should introduce us. This is the recap and the thought of the entire series. And we've been trying to put this awareness in your life all series long. We've handed out these little magnets to say, who is my neighbor? And you, if you don't have these today, you can get them at the back table. We've got them laying there if you weren't here this Sunday. And we said, be aware of who your neighbor is. God has put these people around your house. Take a, a, a whiteboard marker and write their name on this little deal and give it to them. Today, we're handing out these little domino keychains that will just be a visible reminder when these keys are sitting on your desk in your office. No one will know what it means but you, but it's a reminder to you, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be aware and I'm supposed to be in action. It's a reminder from you, for you as you're driving from one place to another in your car and you see the keys dangling down on, on your keychain. It's a reminder that where I'm going to today, God already is and perhaps he has someone there that I'm supposed to talk to. Like we will do anything. We would give away free tattoos if it would help you remember that you're supposed to be aware and active discipling people. So we give magnets, we give keychains, we give t-shirts, we put flags in the ground and then we hang on to them. All for the purpose of being reminded that we are Christ's ambassadors and that we are supposed to be intentional about reaching people for him. Say, Christian, tell me how I do that. One of the things we do is we shape special days in the course of this church where you can bring people who are far from God, well, we guarantee you they will have a good experience. You know, a lot of times people don't invite their friends to church because they don't, they don't know what's going to be preached on. They don't know what songs are going to be sung. They don't know what's going to be said, and they're afraid their friends will be turned off and offended. One of my favorite memories in the history of our church, we had a couple come to church who had never been to church ever before on the very first Sunday that we did church. They were not Christians. They didn't give their life to Jesus that day, but they really liked our church. The next Sunday, they came back for a second time, and the guy grabbed me before he walked into church. He said, hey, here's my name. I came to church last week for the very first time. It was awesome. I've invited my friends today, so, like, don't suck. Like, that's what he told me. So I told our leadership team that. So every time now we have a big Sunday, one of our ushers will come up behind me and say, don't suck today. There's a lot of new people here. So we said, okay, let's make sure we have certain Sundays we, where we for sure won't suck. Like, let, let's plan that this will be the greatest Sunday ever, and let's tell people that. Because what has happened in the history of our church is we have these great Sundays, and people will come up and say to us, man, if I'd have known church was going to be like that today, I'd invited, I would have invited this person. Man, if you, were gonna, if you told me you were going to preach that message today, I would have invited this person. 
man, if I knew the music was going to be that good today, I would invite. So we thought, let's tell our church when we're going to have those Sundays so they know beforehand. So we've got four. Four Sundays we're planning to reach people far from God. On the first one is next Sunday as we start this new series on the real Jesus. And we've been handing out these little business cards for you to invite people because I still believe everyone is curious about Jesus and respects Jesus, whether or not they, they're a person of faith. Everyone is curious about and respects Jesus. So we're going to kick off this series next week with this simple statement of I am. And we're calling it Jesus in the present tense. Jesus today wants to be for you who he was to anyone that you've ever read about. It's going to be awesome. And it's a great Sunday to invite your friends. The next huge Sunday that's designed for the people on these flags is December 7th. We're calling it Friend Day with Clayton King. Clayton has been here twice to preach. Every time he preaches, people far from God have their eyes open spiritually. He's just the best communicator to people far from God of anybody I've ever met. And we designed those Sundays so people can bring their friends. December 14th, we're having our Christmas extravagance. Our kids' choir is singing. Our preschoolers are singing. Our choir is singing. It's going to be a huge Christmas celebration. And it's a time to say to people, hey, my kid's going to be on stage singing. Will you come and will you watch them? We actually had a young lady in our church who on back to school Sunday brought three families because she told her mom, I realize every Sunday when we leave for church, they're never going anywhere. So I want to invite them to come and watch me sing. And they came and watched her sing. One of our kids who realized, I think these people would come today. On Sunday, December, or on Wednesday, December 24th, we're having our Christmas Eve family communion service at Harris Park Community Center at 5 p.m. And on that day, we'll come and we'll sing Christmas songs and our choirs will sing and We'll take communion together, and everyone around the holidays is just a little more open to coming to church. So if we can be aware, Jesus, I'm supposed to impact people. And if we can be given opportunities, here's going to be an easy one for me. And if we will get intentional, folks, we can truly make a difference, not just in this community, but in the lives of people in this community. And I promise you they need Jesus, like we need Jesus. You know, I don't know where you are spiritually right now. But there were times when the Apostle Peter was closer to Jesus than anyone else. And for some reason, we see him in Matthew 26, 58, 59, drifting a little bit. Have you drifted a little bit? Are you as close to Jesus as you used to be? What commitments have you let slide? Are you around him more than you're with him? Have you kind of pulled back from participating and you just kind of watching to see how things go? Is your love for Jesus something deep, but something that's private? I mean, if God is speaking to you today in any way, he's saying, come closer. He actually told the prophet Jeremiah, you tell people, if they'll return to me, I'll return to them. Which literally means every step they take forward, I'll, I'll meet them halfway. Today, Jesus doesn't want you to follow at a distance. He wants you to start coming back. And guess what? He'll meet you halfway. Because we've got this ministry of reconciliation. We need to let people know God loves them and wants to be their friend. And nothing they've done matters to him. He wants to forgive them and be their friend. And he's changed us so we can go and help change others. So let's take this serious and walk out of this series, not just with a knowledge, but man, with practical steps of application to help be useful in our life spiritually. Let's pray.